You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is the word of the Lord. I'm pregnant. It's all right, not me. (laughs) But when you hear someone say that, you know that these are the words that change your life. Finding out that you're pregnant is a defining moment. One that brings a whole range of emotions. For many, it's uh, an inexpressible joy. This is the most wonderful blessing, the thing that you've been looking for and waiting for and wanting for so long. For others, uh, that joy, there is a joy, but it may be tinged with fear or anxiety. Perhaps you've been pregnant before and lost those babies, had a miscarriage or more than one. And so you begin a new pregnancy with a certain sense of trepidation. For others, there might almost be a sense of guilt. You rejoice that you're pregnant, but you're aware of the others around you, the people that you know and love who can't be pregnant, who desperately long to be parents, but can't be, and perhaps never will be. And then for others, there is this sense of dread, You didn't want to have a baby, not now, not at this stage of your life or your career or not with him. Perhaps you just feel utterly overwhelmed. You don't have the money or the support to make this work. And so perhaps for any or all of these reasons, you feel like you just can't go through with this. You don't want this baby and so you won't have it. You'll have an abortion instead. Today is a very heavy topic. I've actually been thinking about this topic for months, uh, wondering about how I'd approach it, what I think about it. See, I feel very strongly in what I believe about this topic, what I think the Bible has to say about it, and yet I'm very aware of the angst around it, the emotion that it brings up for all kinds of reasons. But that's also why I'm so thankful that we're doing this. One of the things One of the reasons why I think this series has been so important and helpful for us is that we're looking into things that are really relevant for our time, our moment, our lives right now, the things that really matter. And here today, we are thinking about something that matters profoundly, something that is very, in every sense, a matter of life and death. And I'm so thankful that we can study this together and that even more than that, we can do that under the the wisdom of God himself, that we have the Bible to shape our thinking. And so today I want to walk through this topic, addressing, first of all, the moral question and then the pastoral challenges around it, and then finally what I think is the church's duty. 
First of all, let's think about the moral question. Is abortion right or wrong? That's where we need to start before we go anywhere else. And to answer this question, we actually need to ask another question. And that is, is the fetus inside a mother's womb a human, a human person? Uh, as the writer Greg Kukul says, this is the question. If the unborn is not a human person, then no justification for abortion is necessary. But if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And if you are here a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at the topic of euthanasia, you'll understand why that might be the case. So looking at the topic of euthanasia, I made the point that I did not think it was right for us to take the life of any human being. That's what God says, Exodus 20, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. God gives life, Job 33, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And only he has the right to decide when that life is taken away, Job 12. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. We must not, therefore, take the life of another human being. That's a very serious problem if we do. Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And, and I want you to see the the reasoning there, because we are made in God's image, then we are precious and valuable. There's something profoundly important about all human life because we are made in the image and likeness of God. We have that dignity, rich and poor, young and old. And, and we don't have to earn this. It's intrinsic to us as human beings. Or actually, as uh, the Christian bioethicist Margaret Somerville puts it, we're not human, we're not human doings. <laughs> We're human beings. We don't have to earn the right to have dignity. We have it because we're made in the image of our God. And that's the overarching principle that we bring to this question of abortion, the value of human life. But is the baby a human life? Is it a human person? That's, that's the question that people ask. That's where the debate around abortion centres. When does someone become a human person with, with rights and a right to life? This was actually at issue with the famous Roe v. Wade court case in America in the 1970s. The 14th Amendment of the US Constitution guarantees rights to all people. Uh, they must not be deprived of life, liberty or property and must be treated equally before the law. Now, to abort someone is to deprive them of life and so the justices drew a distinction between personhood and humanity. As one writer describes it, personhood became something that a human being develops at some point based upon some set of criteria. In a sense, you kind of reach personhood at some point, they were saying. But, but at what point is that? And what is the criteria? Well, that's where the debate really starts to happen. See, some people would argue that the fetus is just a, a bunch of cells as long as it is in the mother's womb, merely parts of the mother's body, a little bit like uh, teeth or an appendix or tonsils. And if that's the case, then the mother has the right to choose whatever she wants to do with the fetus. Just as she might remove a tooth or have a tonsillectomy, she can remove the baby and have an abortion. Her body, her choice. And some would argue that she retains this right all the way up until the baby breathes in the air of the outside world. Now, a lot of people would balk at this, even those in favour of abortion. And so they believe that it, uh, while it might be permissible to abort the fetus, there's a point where this becomes unacceptable. 
There's a point during gestation where someone must be considered a person with its own right to life. Uh, many people put this point at the point of viability, when the baby can survive outside the womb. In the 1960s, that, that was in around 28 weeks. Nowadays, it's around 22, 23 weeks. Perhaps it'll get uh, earlier, more, uh, even earlier as technology develops. Others are more conservative and say that the fetus must be recognised as a person earlier, such as at the point of implantation. Uh, six days after the embryo is fertilised, it descends down the fallopian tube and attaches to the wall of the mother's uterus. Some would say that before this point, it cannot be considered a person, and so it's permissible to have something like the morning after pill that delays the ovary from releasing an egg. But still others would say that you become a human, a person, at the point of conception. At the very moment a man's sperm fertilises a woman's egg, a new human being is formed and life begins. That's what I would say. And I think that the Bible and science backs this up. First, let's start with the science. Technological advancements have given us amazing insights into how quickly a baby develops in the womb. Between five and nine days, it already has a gender. Let's say it's a girl. At three weeks, her heart begins to beat. At four weeks, her head and her body are distinguishable. Her eyes and ears and mouth are forming. Her arms and legs have started to bud. At six or seven weeks, she has brain function. At eight weeks, her hands and feet are almost perfectly formed. She has fingers, fingerprints, toes. She can do somersaults. At 10 weeks, she can suck her thumb, squint, swallow, frown. At 11 weeks, she has facial expression. She can smile. At 13 weeks, she's moving around in the womb, responding to pain and noise and light. She can even have hiccups. Hence, by the end of the first trimester, as one writer puts it, a miniature baby lies in the mother's womb, and from then on, the child merely develops in size and strength. As one writer puts it, this is no mere clump of cells. This is a living, growing human being. In fact, as soon as the ovum, the egg, is fertilised by the male gamete, the sperm, 23 pairs of chromosomes are complete, and the path of that person is already set. You can already tell their gender, the colour of their skin, their hair, their eyes, even have insights into their intelligence and temperament. As Norman Geisler puts it, at human conception, there is not a potential human, but a human life with great potential. Uh, some people talk about this as the difference between a constructionist theory of personhood and a developmental theory. The constructionist imagines that you kind of construct a person progressively. It's a little bit like when you build a house. You kind of start with the foundations as you put up some struts and so on, eventually you put the roof and whatever. And at some point, it's identifiable as a house. But the developmental theory says that the baby is always a human, but a developing human. It's like a peach tree. You plant the seed and it starts to grow. It develops, but it's always been a peach tree from the very beginning. That's how it is, I think, with humanity. It starts as a person and just develops. As Margaret Somerville puts it, the rest of life is simply a development of the early person. And I think these scientific realities are really important for us to understand because I think it 
it needs to shape the way we view abortion. And I think it might even change the way people view abortion if they knew about that. I read a heart-rending story about one woman who remembers a conversation that she'd had with her abortion clinic counsellor. She said, what does a three-month-old fetus look like? And the woman quickly responded, oh, it's just a clump of cells. But then later, when she saw pictures of the detail of the development of the baby, she was devastated. When I saw that a three-month-old clump of cells had fingers and toes and was a tiny, perfectly formed baby, I became hysterical. I've been lied to and misled. I'm sure thousands of other women are being just as poorly informed and badly served. I think the story of Dr. Bernard Nathanson is particularly relevant here. Uh, he was an internationally recognised uh, OBGYN who was at the forefront of pushing for abortion. He'd really campaigned hard to make it legal to have abortions. Uh, he helped, helped to operate one of the largest abortion clinics in the world. I think he was responsible for something like 60,000 abortions himself or in, in his clinic. But in the midst of all of this, he began developing ultrasound technology. And then he came to, as he was looking at these images that were coming back, he came to feel really convicted that this was wrong that this was a human being. He writes, modern technologies have convinced us that beyond question, the unborn child is simply another human being, another member of the human community, indistinguishable in every way from any of us. And so science then, I think, is clear that what is inside the womb is a human, a human being. It's not just a clump of, of cells, it's a person, a human person deserving of life. But of course, as God's people, as we study the Bible, we have more than just science and technology. I, in fact, I think science has merely confirmed what the Bible has been telling us for thousands of years. See, the Bible makes it very clear that the baby in the womb is a human with full personhood and an intrinsic value. I was reading something recently by John Stott, has this wonderful little section on Psalm 139, the, the psalm that we read before. And he talks about how there's three themes in this psalm of creation, continuity, and communion. First of all, it's clear from the psalm that we are created by God. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So, so God is the creator involved with the child. And there's this real joy in his work. We are handmade, handcrafted. He draws out the pattern of your fingerprints. He values you as a creator. And then secondly, Stott notes, there's a continuity between the person inside the womb and the person outside the womb. So Stott notes references to four stages in this psalm. There's the past. You have searched me, verse 1. There's the present. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar, verse 2. That's the present tense. Then there's the future, verse 10. Your hand shall lead me. It's going to happen in the future. And there's also a prenatal phase, verse 13. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So four stages, but continuity through all of them. It's the same person speaking and experiencing these things throughout. As he says, he who is thinking and writing as a grown man has the same personal identity as the fetus in the womb. And then thirdly, there's a sense of communion. 
the writer has this clear sense that God is in relationship with him throughout all of these stages. It's the God who made him, moulded him, leads him now, and he's in relationship with God from womb to tomb. We see this elsewhere in the Psalms, Psalm 22. You are he who took me from the womb. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. And you see this principle elsewhere in the Bible as well. So we have John the Baptist, for instance. He's named while he's in the womb. He has an identity, a personhood, even as he's in the womb. And then there's parts of Scripture which, which imply that God knows us even before we're conceived. Jeremiah 1, before I formed you in the womb, God says, I knew you. In fact, Paul goes even further back than that. Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so before you even existed, long before you were conceived, before, the, before anything existed, before the world existed, God knew you. You were a person in his eyes. As Stop puts it, what makes us a person then is not that we know God, but that he knows us. Not that we love God, but that he has set his love upon us. So each of us was already a person in our mother's womb because already then God knew us and loved us. And so in the matter of abortion, I think the Bible is very clear. The fetus is not just a fetus, it's a human, a human being, a human person with the right to life. And so I am pro-life. In fact, I can't see as Christians how we can be anything other than pro-life. And yet even as I say that, I recognise that this view may not make sense in our culture around us, that our culture has... Uh, condoned and accepted abortion for so long that our values might not uh, make sense in our world around us. I read a stat during the week that one in six, they estimate one in six Australian women have had an abortion by their mid-30s. It's seen as a basic right for women. So, so how do we speak into that? Or what, what do we say as God's people into that culture? And then beyond that, I'm also fully aware that there are so many pastoral challenges around this question. As the writer Karen Swallow Pryor puts it, Karen is a, a passionate pro-lifer. She spent decades uh, working to help uh, women in crisis, at crisis pregnancy centres. She's, she's fought for changes to laws. To, to uh, you know, She's a real passionate pro-lifer. She has skin in the game. She says that abortion never occurs in a moral, social or political vacuum. For, the, for lots of reasons, some women get to a point where it's, they feel it's better to destroy the unborn child than to let him or her live. So, so there are pastoral challenges around this too. So, so how do we approach that? That's what I want to turn to now. First of all, I want to think about this choice argument. And just to be clear, I'm talking here about the, the prevailing view around us that a woman just has the right to choose no matter what. It's not so much that she feels the need to have an abortion, perhaps, but it's she feels that she must have that right to be able to do it if she just chooses not to. Uh, this might be because she's not ready to leave the workforce. She's not confident that the father is a suitable father. or This is just not what she wants to do right now. 
And I'm focusing here on the woman because that's how the culture views it. You know, we're often told that uh, we're not allowed to have an opinion if, if we're not that woman. She has the ultimate right, her body, her choice. And she doesn't have to explain any reason. She's just whatever she, if she feels that she wants to do this, then she should be allowed to do this. I don't think, though, that we can accept that. Recently, I read a quote the other day, actually, from an actress who summed it up. When she fell pregnant, her and her boyfriend were just dating. This was just a short-term thing. She said, oh, look, he's a great dude, but he was not going to be my forever person. And she said that her baby just felt like a seed planted in me, like a polyp that needed to be removed. And so she did. I was fine, she says. I didn't think about it again. It was seriously like having a cyst removed. And I was crampy for two weeks afterwards and I never thought about it. I don't think we can accept that. See, this is a human life that we're talking about here, made in God's image and valuable. And it cannot and must not just be disposed of or discarded. And I don't think we can just say that the the baby is part of the woman's body. I mean, first of all, it's, it's just not actually true. I mean, it has its own unique DNA from the earliest point of its pregnancy. It's different to the mother. If it's a boy, it clearly is different, has a different gender. He may have a different skin colour. He has his own fingerprints. He's unique. He's connected by the umbilical cord and the placenta, but he's distinct. So, no, we don't get to just choose what happens to him. He has a right to life. And see, really, when we're talking about this, we're confronting one of the big ideas of our culture, that we have the right to choose whatever we want to do. We've looked at this right through the series, Genesis 3. We are tempted by the promise of being gods who get to define their own world and get to choose whatever suits them. But that doesn't always work. We don't just get to choose whatever we want. There are reproductive rights. There are reproductive freedoms and choices. But that happens before conception. And I believe afterwards... We have to commit to having the child. But what about those who feel like their choices are narrowed by circumstance? They don't, they're not just approaching this in some kind of glib way. They genuinely feel like their choices have been taken away from them. Take, for instance, those who discover that their precious baby has some fetal abnormality, spina bifida perhaps, or a brain abnormality, or, or Down syndrome. Uh, one study found that in America, something like 92% of women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to abort, abort their child. In Australia, the rate's about 90%. In Denmark, it's 98%. Now, I can't imagine how challenging and difficult it would be to receive that kind of diagnosis. They face a life of difficulty challenge, heartbreak, exhaustion, cost. As, as a parent, you know that if you're a parent here, you know how challenge, challenging it is to think if your child is handicapped in any way or has any kind of struggle. My wife often talks about how uh, having children is like having your heart living outside of your body. It's there walking around and, and you feeling that 
You worry for them constantly. So, so if you find this diagnosis, you, you might feel like, oh, this is the only thing I can do, the, the best thing for me, and, but also for the baby themselves. They're going to have a, a difficult life. Surely I should prevent that. And yet I think we need to consider what's going on here. See, there's this idea, first of all, that a handicapped person is a, is a lesser person, that somehow they don't get to, they don't deserve life somehow. Now, surely that's wrong. I mean, we know that we must honour those who are disabled. We need to create a society that uh, fits them outside the womb. So surely we should extend the same level of care to them while they're inside the womb. And it's also worth asking, what kind of assumptions are we making about what makes life good? So this argument that abortion saves the child from a life of misery, we need to question that. There was a study done of some spina bifida patients who were asked if they felt their lives were meaningless and whether they felt they should have been left to die. The report found their unanimous response was forceful. Of course they wanted to live. In fact, they thought that the question was ridiculous. Similarly, a 2011 study done by Harvard University researchers found that people with Down syndrome have unusually high rates of happiness. 99% said they were happy with their lives. 97% said they liked who they are. 96% said they liked how they looked. Charlotte Fiend is a young British woman with Down syndrome who once publicly challenged a UN expert on human rights who'd been advocating for the abortion of Down syndrome babies. She said to him, I keep hearing you use the word suffering in relation to Down syndrome. The only thing we have to suffer are people who want to make us extinct. I have a brilliant life. I have a family that loves me. I have great friends. Now, someone pointed out, the richness of life is not defined by how powerful or gifted or good-looking we are, but ultimately it's defined by how much we are loved. And that's actually something that we as a community have power over. We can love someone to give their, give their life joy and meaning. So, of course, raising a handicapped child is a daunting task, incredibly daunting but one that we can step into. But then there's another even harder scenario that we need to consider. See, in a very small percentage of cases, a woman falls pregnant because of rape or incest. And many would argue that in such a situation, they should have the right to end their pregnancy. I mean, they've suffered an unspeakable wrong. They've been violated. This speaks to the the evil of sexual violence. There's nothing more despicable a thing that a man can do to use his power to abuse a woman, to so subvert and vandalise that moment of beauty and connection to destroy someone else. And so the instinct within us is out of compassion. Surely she shouldn't have to keep going with this. I mean, the, the child will remind them of their trauma they're going to have to go to these prenatal sessions and how profoundly difficult that will be. 
Every checkup will trigger the horror of it all. They might even be forced to have contact with their abuser and then they can never put this behind them. They're always going to be reminded of what's happened to them. And yet I'm not sure that abortion is the right answer. See, some studies have found that actually the mother might be traumatised, not just by the rape, but by the abortion. And there's also evidence that going through with the pregnancy can help, in part, redeem the horrific experience of the rape. But besides all of that, what about the child? I mean, aren't we effectively punishing them for the crime of the man? And aren't we now creating two victims, the woman and the child? I don't think we can do that. So I think instead we need to find a way to help the mother keep going with the pregnancy. Perhaps it's with the offer of adoption at the end of it, something. But for the sake of the child, and even for the mother, I think it's right to pursue uh, the pregnancy. And there's actually some remarkable stories from people who are born from situations like this. Randy Elkhorn says, I'll never forget speaking to a group and saying every child, regardless of the circumstances of their, of their conception, deserves to live. Afterwards, a, a young woman came up to me weeping and was finally able to say, I've always heard abortion is right when pregnancy is a result of rape, but that's how I was conceived. And this was the first time I've ever heard someone say, I deserve to live. My mother was raped when she was 12. She gave birth to me, gave me up for adoption to a wonderful family. I'll probably never meet her, but every day I thank God for her and her parents. If they hadn't let me live, I wouldn't be here to have my own husband and children and my own life. But then there's another group of people who face the impossible choice, the choice between the mother and the child. See, in some situations, it's not possible for both the mother and the child to survive. In an ectopic pregnancy, for instance, a, a fertilised egg starts to develop outside of the uterus, usually in the fallopian tubes, and so the baby cannot survive. It's, it's not possible. And sometimes there are situations where the mother may have terminal cancer and only the baby can be saved. These are impossible choices. But in such situations, I would say that it's right for whatever life can be saved to be saved. That the one life is better than none. Again, Randy Elkhorn says, friends of ours were faced with a fast-spreading uterine cancer in which removing the cancer would result in the unborn child's death. They knew that to wait for the child to become viable meant both the mother and the child would die from the cancer. It was heartbreaking, but they and we were confident that the decision to save the mother's life was right. And he goes on to say, this was not an abortion. The purpose of the surgery is not to kill the child, but to save the life of the mother. And there was therefore a consistently pro-life act. The child's death was a tragic, unintended consequence of life-saving efforts. And then he says, being pro-life isn't just about babies. Being pro-life is also about women who are every bit as valuable as babies. But there's still that remaining question of how do we help those who feel most vulnerable? How do we help those people, those women, those families who face the, the biggest hurdles that these pregnancies might bring?
They might be a family living in poverty. Uh, I read a statistic the other day that from the abortions in 2018 in the United States, almost three quarters of people who had abortions were people living close to the poverty line. So how are they supposed to go through with a pregnancy, particularly if they can't get the kind of family benefits that we might get here in Australia? Or it might be a woman who's alone, a single parent. She doesn't have the support of family around. Or perhaps she does have family, but she can't tell them. They'll never accept her if she talks to them about this. Or perhaps it's, it's her boyfriend or her husband pressuring her. And he's a, just a dropkick, leaving her with everything. It's your body, it's your choice, it's your problem. Or worse, he's, he's even abusive. Maybe he's pressuring her, demanding that she get an abortion. And so this poor woman feels completely alone and overwhelmed. What do we say in such a situation? Well, I think we continue to say that this is a baby that needs to be protected, that has a right to life. We suggest things like an adoption or perhaps if she feels so overwhelmed. But also, we feel profoundly our need to help. And that's where it leads me to this third point, the church's duty. You see, as I've been thinking through all of this stuff, I have felt profoundly the weight of our responsibility. You see, we can have great clear understandings, a great clear ethical position on abortion but we have to deal with the practical realities of that as well. We have to provide the support that would make a vulnerable person see that there are other options. When they've reached the end of everything else, we are the ones who must be there to give them something else. Now, let me kind of bottom line it. As I see it, we have to carry a burden. We either carry the burden, sharing the burden of those who are vulnerable and overwhelmed. We say, we're going to come alongside you and help you carry this. Or we carry the moral burden of abortion. So either we do enough to help people so that they don't feel like they have to have an abortion, or we carry the guilt as a church of those abortions that do happen. See, all too often people say that Christians are only anti-abortion rather than pro-life. People make the accusation that we're constantly demanding that women have their babies but not doing anything to help them. If we were truly pro-life, we wouldn't just be for the life of the baby, we'd be for the life of the family, for the mother. And tragically, many women would never even think of coming to Christians. One study out of the US found that at the time of their first abortion, 37% of women were attending a Christian church at least once a month. And more than half would not recommend discussing an unplanned pregnancy with someone at their church. There's something so tragic about that. Here are people who feel incredibly vulnerable, who feel like they have no other option, and the church is the last option that they would go to speak to which is tragic because I think we could do so much. I think we can offer help, we can offer, offer hope, and we can offer 
healing. First of all, we can offer help, practical help. There's actually lots of examples of practical help out there. There's actually, in America, there's more pregnancy crisis centres than there are abortion clinics. And here in Australia, there's less of that, but there are some things. So here in Melbourne, there's this extraordinary thing called the Babes Project, started by a Christian with the goal to empower and support women in their pregnancy and early parenting. On their website, it says, every woman needs support, knowledge, and an understanding ally to thrive in her motherhood. The Babes Project empowers new mums to face the fears, tears, and challenges through pregnancy in the first crucial year of their baby's life. And so they have all of these different services like individual one-on-one support and group activities and advocacy with healthcare and practical workshops, planning sessions, and provide vital goods like nappies and so on. And there's just some amazing stories from their work. Uh, on the sermon notes, you'll see the story of Cassie. For Cassie, pregnancy meant feelings of guilt and a lack of support from those closest to her. Her dad didn't want me to have her. I was feeling a lot of guilt and I knew I wouldn't have any support and I don't have any family around me and I'd suffered lots of depression and other things throughout my life, so I was just freaking out. But with the Babes Project, parenting has brought some of her greatest joys. She's changed my life. I'm the happiest I've ever, ever, ever been. She says it's not easy. Not at all, but I just relish in it and this place has helped me so much. Once I had her having a community to come to, I don't know how I would have managed without it. It helped me feel normal and it helped me feel like I was doing things right. Isn't that just just wonderful? And imagine if, if we did something like that. Like imagine if we here at City on a Hill, Melbourne West, did something like that. There's not actually a babes project in the western suburbs, they're in Frankston and the east. So there's a, a space here. And just imagine if we started to fill it. Just imagine if we were the people vulnerable women turned to. You know, we're there when someone gets that pregnancy test and they're feeling overwhelmed in those first few weeks. And the men of this church stand right alongside her so she doesn't feel threatened by her boyfriend. She doesn't feel afraid physically. Perhaps there's there's someone in our church who goes along with her to the doctor, all of her appointments. Her mother's not around, but we have mothers in our church who are around with her. And she starts going along to a kids group here, a play group. We've got so many young mothers. And she sees how they interact with their kids and she starts to realise that she can do this too. And she's already connected to these people. And then at the birth, in that moment, that it's one of the hardest moments of a person's life. There's a, there's a doula. There's, there's someone as assistant from our church, someone who's there right alongside her, helping her get through labour. And then on the other side, we're there. We're cooking meals for her. We're making sure that she's supported. She's got another set of arms. So if she just hasn't slept all night, we're there. We're cleaning the house. We're, we're doing the dishes. And over time, she comes along to the mum's group, she's connected. Maybe we even offer her some accommodation for a week or two, whatever it is. We're giving nappies, whatever. We are there. Imagine if we did that. That's truly pro-life. 
And, and imagine we even did something for the guys. You know, we're, we're there alongside that boyfriend. We're saying, look, man, you can do this. We'll support you. We'll help you. It's time to step up to be a dad and we're going to walk with you. I've been praying about this and, and I just would love for us to consider something like this. Galatians 6 says, Bear one another's burden and so fulfil the law of Christ. Are we willing to help carry the burden? And see, as we do this, as we offer help, we start to offer hope. As we minister to someone's practical needs, we can start to minister to their spiritual needs as well. We offer hope. Uh, when we fell pregnant with our first child, Finn, I felt completely overwhelmed. I didn't feel ready to be a dad. It seemed uh, incredibly intimidating for a whole bunch of reasons. It was a surprise. We weren't expecting. This wasn't our plan. We'd been married for five minutes and this was all very different for us. And I remember that morning that we found out. Honestly, I wanted it not to be true. We kept looking at the pregnancy test and the two lines. We kept looking at the yep, two lines. It's, this is real. Like we, this is happening. And I remember my wife went to work and I was kind of in this daze and I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I needed to turn to God. So I opened my Bible and as I recall, I opened up to Psalm 139, the very psalm that we looked at. And when I did that, I found hope. See, I didn't know my child, my son, but in that psalm I discovered that God already did, that life had already begun that he knew all about it, that he was being knit together inside my wife's womb. And so I came to see that even though I was afraid, God was with me, the father of fathers. Psalm 139 told me that he'd always been there. When my son was an unformed substance, unknown and mysterious, God knew him then. And even though I was uncertain and I didn't know how to be a dad, the father of fathers, my heavenly father, did. So on the day when I discovered that I was a father, also came to understand my heavenly father. And I started to find hope. That's what we can offer people. We can offer hope. And then thirdly, we can offer healing. See, our culture will seek to say that abortion is, is not a big deal. can even try to say that it's positive, liberating. I read someone say during the week it's a, it's a kind of political act. There's a website, Shout Your Abortion, seeking to normalise it. On the, during the week I saw a, a website, I had an abortion T-shirt modelled by a young, attractive woman smiling. But the reality is far different. See, the reality is that abortion can destroy not just a baby, but a mother, a father, a family. I've been reading through stories of people who've regretted their abortions and the pain stays with them for so long. Nicki Minaj, the singer, wrote about having an abortion when she was 15. It was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. It has haunted me all my life. 
One woman who posted her story anonymously online was in her 60s but recalled getting an abortion back when she was 18. I woke up so empty. It's an emptiness I can't describe. It was so overwhelming. I felt so alone and still do. Years later. As Frederica Matthews Green puts it, abortion hurts women and breaks their hearts. That's because deep down we understand what's happening in an abortion, that it's the taking of a human life. And as Charmaine Krauss-Yost puts it, it is a real death of a living human being and the real death of a living human being has moral weight and spiritual consequences. That's why it hurts. That's why it stays with people. And we have to grapple with that. We have to grapple with that if we've had a part in an abortion. If it's a mother who's aborted and a child, then you need to grapple with that. But it's not just her because it implicates everyone else too. If you're a a bloke who's pressured your girlfriend or your wife to have an abortion, you need to feel this. If you're a parent who's made their daughter feel like there was no other option, you need to feel this. If you're a friend who hasn't been present enough so that someone didn't feel like they had any other options or, or you didn't have the courage to suggest something else, you need to feel it. And we as a church need to feel it because we have a responsibility too. Are there things that we have failed to do? Sins of omission. Where we haven't provided vulnerable people with the support that they needed to go through with a pregnancy. We need to carry the moral burden of that. Now, we don't want to do that because it just seems too horrific. We don't want to stare into that abyss of guilt. So we might want to just try to avert our eyes, to push it down, to try to ignore it. But it will keep hurting us, keep haunting us until it's truly dealt with. And the only way that it can be truly dealt with is if it's forgiven. And that's the thing that God offers us, the very thing that God offers us. That's his promise to us, that we can be forgiven and healed. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What, what a What a word of hope and healing. Isn't that what we want? We want cleansing. We want a new life. We want to start again. And that's the very thing that God offers us. It's the very thing that he's given us at the greatest cost to himself. You see, it's only possible because Jesus has died to make it possible. Our sin must be punished. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But Jesus takes that death for us. He takes it on. He takes our guilt, what we deserve, and pays for it himself. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to do this, to give life to us, to give us a new life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because that's the next thing that we see, Jesus died and then he was raised from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He died for our sin and then he rose 
to give us new hope, a new life, true healing, a fresh start. God is, in every sense, pro-life. He is the one who gave us life in the first place. John 1, 4, he is the creator in whom was life, a life that would be the light of men. Now sin has disrupted and destroyed that, bringing death, but Jesus came to restore life. He said in John 10, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And that's what he offers. He gave his life so that we could have a new life that's full and forever. And so, like our Saviour, as his people, may we be truly pro-life in every sense, at every stage. Let's fight for the right to life for those most vulnerable, for the baby in the womb and for the woman, for the mother, for the family who is vulnerable. Let us be with them offering life just as God offers life to us. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, this is a tough topic, a big topic, confronting topic, but it's important that we look at it and we thank you that you've invited us to do that. Lord, we, uh, we mourn the reality of abortion. Lord, we mourn the circumstances around it too. The situations where families are broken, where uh, people feel vulnerable, abused, alone, isolated, no other resources, no help. Lord, we thank you that you love the vulnerable. You go to those who need the most. So, Lord, may we be like that. May we be truly and deeply and profoundly pro-life. May we be a church where no one feels alone, where anyone who feels vulnerable knows that they have help. May we carry the weight. May we share the burden so that we bring life into the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.